0: Good morning. Today we head into our last lap of our year-long look at the New Testament letter called 1 Corinthians, uh, written by the Apostle Paul around 54 AD, written to a young church that was just plagued with problems. And we're in chapter 11 if you want to open your Bible or your Bible app and read along today. But here's a question just to get us started. Has everyone, anyone ever spread a lie about you? I mean, started a rumor about you That that is more than just insulting, that that they wanted to hurt you. They wanted to do damage to your reputation. They did it maliciously and intentionally. And the more outrageous the lie, the better, because people tend to believe salacious things. After all, you know, where there's smoke, there must be fire, right? Except sometimes it's just smoke. Once the accusation is out there, it takes on a life of its own. You can't put it back in the bottle, and the damage is done. We see this played out in the media all the time on a daily basis. We used to call it propaganda, but we've had to dumb that down, and now we just call it fake news. Well, that's what happened to the disciples. In the decades following the resurrection of Jesus, Christians became the victims of a smear campaign, an intentional malicious attack on the followers of Jesus that led to regional riots and government-sanctioned persecution. Christians were beaten, arrested, killed, their businesses and homes destroyed. At times they became refugees and fugitives, but they were not silenced and they continued to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, even though it put them at great risk. Many thousands of Christians were killed, martyred in the Roman Colosseum, publicly slain by gladiators and wild animals to amuse the cheering crowds who believed the rumors that were spread about Christians. Most of the disciples were killed this way, including the Apostle Paul. Well, what could Christians be accused of that could possibly justify that kind of hatred and violence? Well, mainly two things. First, that they were atheists out to subvert the Roman Empire, and then second, that they were cannibals, cannibals. Let me take a minute to unpack that for us. As the Roman Empire spread across the ancient world, they absorbed many other cultures which had their own religions and gods. And the Romans allowed people to worship as they pleased as long as they added one more god to the top of their list, the Roman Emperor. He was considered a divine being. And once a year, everyone was required to bow down before his emblem and acknowledge him as their supreme god. You could worship whatever you wanted as long as the emperor was on top. That worked for everyone except the Jewish people, who fiercely revolted against what they saw as blasphemy. There was only one God, Yahweh, and they would not bow to any other God. And so to quell the rebellion, the Jewish people actually got a special exemption, and they did not have to bow before the emblem of the emperor. The followers of Jesus were originally covered by that same exemption because they didn't set out to start a brand new religion. They saw themselves as a fulfillment of the Jewish faith because Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. But as time progressed, Judaism and Christianity became more distinct, and Christians lost their protected status. But like the Jews, Christians could not bow to the emperor as a god, for they had one allegiance, and that was to Jesus Christ. And so they were called atheists because they did not worship the one god that really counted in the minds of the Romans. And they were labeled subversives because they called Jesus their king. And the Romans didn't like that. Remember Jesus before Pontius Pilate? That was enough to condemn the followers of Christ to persecution. But the lie about being cannibals, that's what inflamed people on the local level. The rumor spread that Christians were cannibals because at their regular gatherings, they reenacted this horrific ceremony. They ate the body. They drank the blood of their master, Jesus. I mean, disgusting, gruesome, eating the flesh and drinking the blood of their master. Can you imagine anything more barbaric? When Christians came to town, parents hid their children. This is no joke. The enemies of Christ found a lie that really worked. It was lunacy, of course, that Christians were eating human flesh. But how do you combat such a disturbing lie when people react so irrationally? You can't even get your side of the story out. The only way Christians could combat these rumors was by living lives of complete integrity. The only way to combat the lies was to disprove them by the good conduct of Jesus' followers. This public perception of Christians was so important, it's talked about in almost every New Testament letter. Just two examples, Philippians 1.27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 1 Peter 2.12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In the year 197 AD, a church leader in northern Africa called Tertullian wrote a brief explanation of the Christian faith to counter these accusations. He wrote, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a good brand upon us. See how they love one another, they say. See how they are ready even to die for one another, they say. The quality of relationships Christians had with each other and with their neighbors, that was the only effective way of counteracting these lies that were being spread. The way they showed love to each other and to their neighbors, that was the key. And in this way, Jesus' words to his disciples came true. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. John thirteen thirty-five. It's a good lesson for us as Christians, and people of faith in general are under increasing attack as the enemy in our secular culture. Christians are smeared by being branded as the misguided, the narrow-minded, the uncaring, the unaccepting. I believe those attacks will only increase as our culture continues to march headlong towards this anti-religion secularism. The only thing we can do is live a life of integrity and love. Not playing politics, not winning at the voting booth, not loud speeches or Facebook posts, but living lives that demonstrate the love of Christ in community so that people sit up and take notice and say, see how they love one another. And that's why the practice of the Lord's table was such an important thing in the early church. It had to be done right, otherwise Christians might give credibility to the false rumors being spread about them. The church had to set even higher moral and personal standards in the culture. And that was what was so distressing about the Christians in Corinth. They were blowing it. Their celebration of the Lord's table had spun out of control, was doing more damage to the reputation of the Christian faith. I mean, the first rule of redeeming your reputation is don't give your enemies more ammunition. You know, don't give them a stick to hit you with. So let's hear some tough words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and, some, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another person gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen. Think with me for a moment about what original first century Christian worship was like. We're given few precise details, but in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, a couple of things come into focus. First of all, we have to remember that there were two main elements of Jewish worship in Jesus' day. There was the temple, and then there was the synagogue, and they were very different. The temple was in Jerusalem. There was only one temple, and the worship practices of the temple were clearly prescribed in the Old Testament. Temple worship was clergy-centered. The priests ran the show, and nobody questioned their power until Jesus came along. They wore special robes and vestments to distinguish themselves as the people who were in power. The people had to go through the priests if they wanted to get to God. Ritual was essential. Lots of formality, long lists of rules guided their worship. The sacrifice of animals was center stage. They had paid musicians and a paid choir. And the people were kept at a distance because they weren't holy enough to approach the altar. The priests held all the cards. On the other hand, the synagogue was local. People couldn't travel to Jerusalem every Sabbath. That was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. The neighborhood synagogue was where people worshipped. The synagogue was run by ordinary people. Anyone could participate. And there was a sense of shared power. People just wore their normal clothes. There was no distinction between the leaders and the people and the way they dressed. It was informal, come as you are. And people knew each other. They had relationships and friendships. Synagogue literally means a place of gathering together. And so there was a sense of community, and a synagogue was an important part of that community. The central piece of their worship was the reading and the teaching of the Word of God. Remember, that's how Jesus actually got his start in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, verse 21. He just stood up in the synagogue to read that day's scripture passage. They would pray, they would sing, maybe accompanied by you know some drums or a person on a flute, and then they would give financially to help support those in need. It's very clear that in their weekly gatherings, the first Christians combined the practices of the Jewish synagogue with their experience of Jesus. Synagogue fellowship was the basis for the pattern of the early church. Singing, teaching of the words of Jesus and the apostles, giving and praying. But they added something. They celebrated this meal called the Lord's Supper weekly when they came together. The Lord's Supper was integrated into something larger called the agape meal or the love feast. Their practice was to come together on Sunday mornings crowded into someone's home. And then they'd have their time of worship and singing and prayer and scripture study. Maybe maybe 40, 50 people, you know, a house church. Often fasting, going without food in the morning and then in the afternoon they'd come together again for a community meal. A shared meal where everyone in that house fellowship. They, they wanted to imitate what Jesus did with the disciples on the night that we call Monday Thursday. Jesus went with his disciples to do what every Jewish person did, was to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is a significant ritual meal for Jews because it recalls God's deliverance as the Hebrews left slavery in Egypt. You can read that in Exodus chapter 12. God, working through Moses, sent a series of plagues on Egypt because of Pharaoh's hard heart, and the final plague was one of death. God instructed the Hebrews to sprinkle the blood of a spotless lamb on a doorpost of their home, a sacrificial lamb that symbolically takes the the death of God's judgment. And then the angel of death passed over those houses of the Hebrews. Because of this terrible judgment, Pharaoh relented and let them go, but God instructed them to get ready and go fast. Because God knew Pharaoh was going to change his mind. There was no time for them to bake normal bread that needed time to rise. And so unleavened bread, matzah, cooked fast and became the symbol of this deliverance. And so Passover is a celebration, a remembrance, a dramatic experience to recall God's action. Jesus took the symbolism of that meal to visibly educate his disciples about his own death. As the meal progressed, Jesus took the matzah bread and he said, Now, this is my body. He said, My body will be sacrificed for you, not a lamb. It's my body that will be broken for your deliverance. Through the course of the Passover meal, there are four cups of wine served. The cup of sanctification, the cup of plagues, which is not drunk, the cup of redemption, and then the final cup of thanksgiving or blessing that is served in anticipation of the coming Messiah, And Jesus took that fourth cup and said, I am the coming Messiah, I am that Redeemer, this is now my cup, this is my blood. And the disciples' mouths just dropped open because Jesus connected the greatest miracle of their Jewish history with himself, the one who was sitting right across the table. Jesus connected his body and blood with the events of the cross and resurrection that they would witness in the next few days. 1 Corinthians 11.24, Paul quotes Jesus commanding them to do this as a remembrance and a proclamation of the gospel, Christ's death for you and me. That's the clearest, simplest, and most obvious meaning of the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial meal, a remembrance. Jesus said, do this remembering me. This is where Protestant Christians differ most from Roman Catholics in our understanding of communion. We stress that we have a table, not an altar. An altar is a place for sacrifices to be made, but no more sacrifices needed. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God. He is our Passover Lamb, and His sacrifice was once for all. We don't have to keep re-sacrificing the Savior. Once and done. And so an altar is not necessary. We don't have an altar in our church. Sometimes Christians confuse their language, but it's an important distinction. No, we're called to be living sacrifices, like it says in Hebrews 13. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and share with others for, with such practices God is pleased. There's no need to re-sacrifice Christ. It's finished, Jesus said, from the cross. And the Roman Catholic view is that they literally re-sacrifice Jesus every time they celebrate the sacrament. A divine miracle takes place every time. The bread and the wine are magically transformed into his very body and blood. Not symbolically, but in reality, the nature of the bread and wine is changed and it becomes the actual body and blood of Christ, re-sacrificed for his people. And we don't believe that. We don't believe in a miraculous transformation of the elements. We don't worship the elements. The bread and cup are not the focus. They stay bread and wine as they were before, but they are a means of bringing us into the powerful presence of the Lord. Christ is really present in our celebration of his table through the Holy Spirit, but not in the bread and not the cup itself. It's sort of like how we experience the presence of the sun. We experience the sun through light. We don't touch the sun. The sun itself is not in the room, but light comes in, the real presence of the sun. And so we believe the Lord's Supper is a table of fellowship with Christ, spiritual nourishment as we present ourselves to him. As far as we can tell, the agape meal, this love feast of the early church, was just a common meal around tables. People would eat together and linger with no sense of hurry, and sort of like the original church potluck. And as the bread and the wine were taken, the Lord's presence would be recalled. It was relatively simple, without much ritual. No gold or silver goblets, no little trays, no little plastic cups. The problem in Corinth was that cliques developed. The tables were getting divided between the rich and the poor, slaves and the free, and people were looking around to see who brought the best food. You know, I brought the fried chicken, and they brought the three-bean salad again. Slaves couldn't bring much. The love feast was probably the best meal they had all week. The rich were eating their food first and then let others just kind of fend for themselves. Barriers were up. They were not acting like the body of Christ. They were not acting in love towards each other. The other problem they faced was that the Christian faith had expanded to include many non-Jews with different traditions, and there was a clash of cultures. People didn't understand the synagogue background or the meaning of the Passover, so they wondered, what are we doing when we get together? The background came, their background came from the special meals served in the pagan temples to the Greek and Roman gods. Often these meals turned just into drunken orgies. This was commonplace in the social life of Corinth, as we've talked about before. So people who converted to Christ often had to cut these social ties. They couldn't join in those pagan feasts anymore. But then they had a hard time putting together the Jewish fellowship meals with the banquets from the pagan temples. It was a cultural collision and some people were getting drunk and going a little too far. So divisions among economic and racial lines between the rich and the poor began to develop. The key principle for Paul is that Christians need to understand that worship and fellowship are both vertical and horizontal. Vertical with God, sure, but just as important is the horizontal with each other. Christians are knit together by the unseen presence of Christ, knit into one body, so there's no justification for the divisions which plague the church. There is this glaring disunity in the Corinthian church, so celebrating the Lord's table was becoming a meaningless ritual, unless the church realized its unity in Jesus. It costs the very life of Jesus to make this new relationship between rich and poor and slave and free and male and female and Jew and Gentile. This love, this unity is to be the hallmark of the body of Christ. And so this is so serious. Paul even says later in the chapter that the Corinthians are actually experiencing a judgment from God, illness, even death, because they've let it get so bad. Now that's not a description of what will happen always, but it is true for their particular situation. In celebrating the sacrament, we are a lot like the Corinthians. They never saw Jesus in earthly form. They never sat at his table, never heard him speak. Like us, Christ is present by the Holy Spirit, and we are united with him in his death and resurrection. We share in his body and blood as a response of faith. There's no magic or efficacy in the elements. The sacrament sacrament signifies to Christians what the Passover meal signified to Jews, God's deliverance. The Lord's Supper connects people in the present with God's actions for salvation. And so our challenge is to recapture the original spirit of the sacrament. Are you willing to love the people seated around you in that way? Are you willing to do what's necessary to become part of true Christian community? Then you need to step out of the shadows. You need to join the church, become a member, show your commitment to his body. And if you are a church member, you need to act that way with your participation, your giving, and your caring for the people in this church community. You need to connect with people more than just through small talk, maybe through small groups or through ministry opportunities. That's the only way we will be a community so devoted to Christ and to each other that when outsiders talk about us, they say, Look, see how they love each other. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we just ask that you'd help us to be honest with ourselves about our level of commitment to community and to actually being the body of Christ and living out what this table represents, your body and blood shed for us, Lord. Help us to truly commit to you, Lord, through committing to this body and to being brothers and sisters to each other, living lives of integrity and caring and love and doing that with our neighbors as well. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.